Welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Today we have something a little different. This is actually a panel discussion that was held at BitTorrent's offices back in December discussing internet freedom and a variety of related issues with a bunch of experts. This happened uh, right before they held a showing of a new documentary called Kill Switch, which is about these various threats as well. The panel was all recorded off of a single mic on a table in front of the in front of all of us discussing it, so I apologize in advance that the sound quality isn't quite up to the level that we normally have, but it's still a really interesting discussion and we hope that you enjoy it. Thanks. We live in an age of instant information So isn't it strange that things have been hidden away from us Governments think we need to gain their trust But it's the other Thank way you everyone for coming out tonight um, As mentioned, I'm Mike Mastic from TechDirt um, We're going to be talking about a bunch of issues tonight Related to um, different threats really that are, are coming towards the internet or, or the internet is facing right now on a, on a regular basis And it just seems like Right now, there have been so many of these that this really is a moment when um, more and more people are realizing both the importance of the internet and of you know, keeping the internet as open and free as possible, while you know also recognizing that that many of these threats may may really sort of challenge that. Um, and so we have a great group of folks here today who can speak to these issues from a variety of different perspectives. Um, starting at the end is, uh, and I, I have to apologize, I've got to the, pronounce the name right, uh, is Ali Akbarzadeh, all right, uh, who um, directed the film, Kill Switch, which you're going to see tonight, um, and really discusses a whole bunch of these issues that are, are facing the internet, and we'll talk about, talk about that. Next to him is Eric Klinker, who's the CEO of BitTorrent. Um, and who you know runs a company that, as mentioned, is very focused on making sure that the internet remains open and free, um, and has a lot of thoughts on that and sort of the, the technical issues related to that. Uh, next to Eric is Rainy uh, Reitman from EFF, um, who heads up a whole bunch of the activism stuff that hopefully everyone in this room is familiar with EFF and the work that they do. Um, and Rainey's been very focused lately on surveillance stuff, but also a variety of other issues related to the internet, and we'll talk about a bunch of those. And finally, right here to my right, is Evan Engstrom from Engine Advocacy, um, which is another great group that hopefully you're already aware of. Engine is a, uh, basically a trade organization representing startups and making sure that startups um, both have voice in political issues and policy issues in D.C. And, and throughout the U.S., and then also that politicians uh, and policymakers and staffers and a variety of other folks um, have a way to actually communicate with, with real innovators and, and startup entrepreneurs and investors, whereas in the past maybe they were, um, you know, policymakers would go to the big companies and not realize how much of the internet and Silicon Valley and different things like that are really driven by entrepreneurs and new startups who didn't necessarily have as much of a voice. They've been really involved in that. So that's great. So we have these different perspectives. To start out, rather than having each of them sort of give a little intro or bio, I wanted to ask each of them sort of a specific question around their area of expertise. And I'm just going to go in order here. So I'm going to start with Evan. Um, in terms of you know, regulatory issues, there are a whole bunch of them that are sort of, you know, facing the internet right now, and a big one that a lot of people are talking about is net neutrality. So I wanted to see if you could give just sort of a very quick overview. We're waiting for the FCC to officially announce rules. Yeah. What does that mean for the future of the internet? Yeah, it's... In, in short. Yeah, in short. It's a big topic that, that we've been debating about for years. I mean, this is not the first time we've gone uh, into the, the debate over net neutrality. We tried it in 2006, 2010, now again today. Um, Really what it boils down to is, is it preserves the principle that's kind of always governed the internet, um, that data should be treated equally. Your gatekeeper, ISP, should not be allowed to charge the company that you're trying to access or limit your access to that company based upon you know, their own capacity to control the pipes, so to speak. Um, it's really ultimately about preventing monopolies from controlling uh, internet access. Uh, where we are now is it's, I think it's instructive to 
to, it reveals a little bit about how the internet community has evolved into a strong policy voice. I mean, one of the big landmark events we always talk about was the, the fight against the SOPA PIPA legislation, um, which was a huge bellwether for um, Washington to kind of wake up and realize this is a community that has a voice and, and will express it. Um, this, in a way, has been just as energizing, for, for certainly from someone in my perspective, where um, unlike SOPA PIPA, where we kind of understand it in broad contours, we know what copyright is, we know what it means to shut down a website, what we're talking about with net neutrality is really a technical issue and a really narrow regulatory issue. And the fact that four million people have weighed in on it, I think, speaks to the vibrancy of, of internet advocacy today. And it's, it, I think it's really heartening. But there's still a lot of work to do. I think the FCC is probably going to do the right thing and, and enshrine uh, strong net neutrality principles uh, into the law. But we, we really need to keep up the pressure on it at this point. Cool. And then, Rainey, I know that you've been doing a lot of work, as I mentioned, around surveillance and, and things along those fronts. Um, there was a big debate recently about the USA Freedom Act, which you know ended up flopping. But um, there's still stuff coming up, and that are that is important for everyone to pay attention to. So, what do you think are the big things in the coming in the next year? Sure. Um, can, do, do people know what the USA Freedom Act is? Like, can you raise your hand if you heard about it? Okay, so a couple people, but not like everybody, maybe. All right, so I just wanted to get a general sense. So um, my work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation is focused on the policy advocacy side of things. So we're working to try to reform the laws to make it impossible for the National Security Agency and other uh, intelligence agencies engage in mass warrantless surveillance. Uh, there's other parts to fixing this problem. For example, there's technologies that can make it more difficult. And there's also impact litigation. We have a legal team that is uh, actively suing the NSA for these uh, surveillance abuses. Um, but my work is mostly on the policy side. And we had a bill that was put forward last year that was a, a bill that would have done a couple of things that could have helped rein in NSA surveillance. We felt kind of torn about it, honestly, because it didn't, it did, you know, two of the 20 things we thought were necessary to ensure that this type of surveillance abuse couldn't happen anymore. And so it did, it did end up not passing out of the Senate, in part because some people didn't think it went far enough. And uh, now there's this real question of, okay, so we're going into next year, what's going to happen? And a lot of people are a little disheartened because they're like, oh, well, we didn't manage to pass the reform bill. Do not be disheartened because in June of 2015, one of the worst provisions of the Patriot Act is up for renewal, which means that if Congress doesn't act, which is among Congress's favorite things to do, uh, we actually will no longer have this section of the law. Now, the law in question, I'm going to get a little wonky for a second, but it'll be brief, uh, is known as Section 215, and it is a section of the law that says that when the government can access uh, tangible things that are relevant to an authorized investigation. So tangible, authorized, uh, investigation, relevant. So the key thing here is that it has to be something that's relevant to what they're looking at. And the National Security Agency has argued that all telephone records are actually in some way kind of relevant to some investigations, so they should be able to get access to it. Um, and we think that's ridiculous and we're suing them over it. But we may not even need to keep suing them if Congress just fails to reauthorize this provision in June. Uh, what Congress is likely to try to do, if they play by the same handbook that they have historically, is they get a lot of pressure, they get a lot of public controversy, and so they decide to just reauthorize it for three months, and then three months, and then three months. And so what we're going to try to do is make it completely uh, politically impossible for people to vote to reauthorize that provision. So that's what's next up. And then the other thing we're working on is a uh, presidential order that was signed by Ronald Reagan back in 1981 uh, that said, so we've been working on it a while, um, <laughs> uh, which uh, we now know is the primary legal authority that the National Security Agency is using to engage in mass internet surveillance, and that is Executive Order 12333. So we just launched a campaign to start to educate people about this issue and try to work uh, because that was a presidential order, the easiest way to undo it would also be a presidential order, another executive order. Obama apparently does like executive orders, so there's a possibility there. Um, so we're kind of, we, we've just started doing that, and I think the main thing now is sort of teaching people about 
that that even exists because many people are, are frankly very unaware of it at this point. So that's sort of what we're looking at in the springtime, uh, you know, next few months. Great. Um, Eric, so, um, you know, a lot of this, the, the, the first two discussions here were sort of about policy issues and, and you know, getting people activated and, and fighting in DC and things like that. You know, there's another element to this as well, which is, you know, what can be done on the, the technology side to, you know, to change the debate from that side. If, if you can make the, the regulatory fights, you know, obsolete through technology, that's often a lot more powerful than even getting, you know, four million people to write to the, the FCC or to convince the president to issue an executive order. So can you comment on sort of the, you know, the, on the technology side of what's being done to keep the internet open and free? Yeah, I mean, we, we think there's clear opportunity there. I mean, we as a technology company and a small one at that, and, and the work that Engine does, I think is great in the sense that, you know, we recognize we don't really have a voice in the policy front. And even if we did, we have a voice in just one regulatory environment. And the world is global. Our users are everywhere. Even if we win in the US, that's 10% of our users, I think, at last count. So you know, the internet as a global entity, and hopefully we'll never have anything that looks like a global regulator of the internet. I, I think that would be frightening. Uh, the opportunities to make the internet better are probably best expressed through technology. It's what created the internet. It's what powers the internet. It's what makes the internet such an effective force in society. So we're, we're very keen on attacking any threat that we see to the internet from a technology perspective. It's natural for us, we're engineers, uh, we like hard problems and threats to the internet are certainly hard problems. Mm -hmm. uh, but no matter what, the, what the, the looming challenge we see is, we think that there's probably a technology solution if we can just unleash the engineers and let them innovate. So that's, that's our general approach to, to things. Not always right, not always perfect. I think one of many tools. Great. Um, Ali, so in terms of, um, you know, there are all these different topics that, that are coming up that, that the first three panelists spoke about, um, and then you went and made this film that talks to a lot of people discussing a, a lot of these issues as well. What, uh, you know, what, what made you think that that was a, an interesting topic for, for a film? What, what, you know, was it something that, uh, you know, just seemed like, you know, the, the that there was a lot of activity happening in there that made yeah. it interesting, or was, is there something deeper? Yeah, I, I um, initially it happened. I, I had, uh, my partner is kind of a tech guy, and uh, we read an article in Wired magazine about net neutrality, and that was kind of the first time that I was introduced to that idea, and it was something that resonated with me on a on a really deep level because I'm someone that's lived in a world without the internet and in the world with the internet, and I and I've definitely seen the potential of this power um, in the hands of people. And so for us, uh, as a production company that just, you know, we make commercials for a living, um, I felt like it was something that I had to do that was outside of, you know, just business and, and money stuff. I, I had to, I felt like this was an issue that concerns us all and I needed to do something about it. And once we picked it up, um, you know, it took us three years to get to the film that you're gonna see today, but it's, it's, I'm certainly the, 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 the little guy on this, uh, this panel here, but I kind of represent the everyday guy. You know, I think we all have a role in protecting the internet. Um, that's the only way we're going to be able to keep it free and open. And so I kind of come at it from that perspective. I don't have all the answers technologically speaking from a policy perspective. Um, but I know, as we saw with SOPA, that when you can activate people who, who are serious about keeping the internet free and open, then real change can happen. And I want to be a part of that, you know what I mean? And so that's what we've done with this one. So let me bring up, you know, based on that, I think that that's, you know, uh, I think there, there's something that's, that a lot of people have been thinking about a lot lately, which is, you know, and going back to the kind of the SOPA debate uh, is, is something that always comes up in, in almost every discussion that around tech policy and, and internet freedom and all these things, people always sort of go back to that, that SOPA debate. And some people, you know, for some people it's great because there was this example of people coming out of nowhere and speaking up on, on a field that was a sure thing. It was, you know, yep. for people who follow that thing, the policy people, you know, that was going to pass, yep. you know, no matter what. And then it didn't because there was, you know, enough, uh, uh, you know, enough people coming out of the woodwork in a really surprising way. Um, and then some people feel that, that that can also be a bad example in that now suddenly, like, you know, people just bring up, like, SOPA as if, like, you know, the, you know, suddenly the internet can rise up and, and 
those of us on the panel can suddenly make the internet rise up and, and change the world. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious what people think about in terms of, you know, how, obviously activism is important, but, you know, how much of it is, you know, can we get enough people or are there other things that can be done to actually, uh, Rainy, you're chomping at the bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just, I always like to share a, this one fact, which is that, you know, I was very involved with the, the SOPA protests and uh, EFF has been involved in conversations with members of Congress, but we've always had kind of a cold relationship. Like, we kind of didn't really like them very much and they didn't really like us very much. And after SOPA, um, it was amazing how many phone calls we got from Congress members. And they wanted to talk to us before they introduced their bills because they wanted to kind of get like a gut check, right? Are you going to SOPA this bill or are you not going to SOPA this bill? Because it's going to make a difference. And, um, so it's not like a new branch of government, right? right. You have <laughs> <laughs> it was, I, I don't know that it's lasted to, at the same level, but it was interesting in the in the wake of the, the, the SOPA protests, having that kind of, that suddenly Washington understood that the internet was a force, that if you tried to, to push something that would endanger the future of the net, that we were capable of organized, organizing and we were ready to defend our rights. And I think that was a game changer. Uh, for policies in DC, and I, I think we're still uh, reaping the benefits of that. And I don't believe that we have to throw an internet-wide protest every year to continue to enjoy that. I think, in fact, that was the beginning of a larger conversation around what is the role of the internet in advocacy uh, in, in Washington, DC. Well, one, one of the interesting things that sort of came out of that, or depending on some discussions, you know, people talked about you know, the people rising up and doing things, but also companies' involvement. And so, and there's an argument, some people make the argument that, you know, the, the SOPA protests wouldn't have been successful without company participation, and, you know, some people sort of, there are a bunch of different right. points on that, and so, in terms of, you know, you working with companies, how much, you know, how involved are companies in these fights, or how much, you know, how much are you pulling them to be involved in these fights, or how much are they coming to you and saying, you know, that they're eager to, to be involved in the policy debates? It's, it's a little bit of both. Um, I think one thing to, to bear in mind is a lot of the companies that we represent, um, to, to borrow a line from Mitt Romney, I mean, these are people. It's These, these companies are people. It's two or three people, right? Um, in, in a more literal sense that he meant it. Um, so, so, so they're... They they recognize that yeah, they have a dual role as as a corporate citizen and as a citizen of the internet um, and and so I think there is a real recognition when you're talking about companies that are that small that you know they, they are thinking from both the, their own perspective and the corporate perspective um, but what's really great about certain company involvement particularly in something like net neutrality is you see larger companies for whom maybe um, a fast lane would be accessible and they're still coming out and speaking out about this um, and on the smaller side you have folks that don't have any lawyers. They've got two people, three people, $80,000. They can't afford an hour of the lawyer's time, much less you know, hiring a lobbyist to work in DC. And they're going, they're flying into DC to meet with people and, and have their voices heard. I, I think it's hard, there's really no clear delineation, I think, between the, these interests on the internet. I mean, certainly there's a great mobilizing aspect of having a large company, um, you, know, like, you know, Wikipedia, blasting it out to its right. users, and, and, and that coalesces support that's already there. It's just sort of a rallying point, I think. Um, but you, you, particularly with things like net neutrality, where they do affect the business model of particular companies, um, oftentimes you see people going against what might be their own financial self-interest to, to do what's right, which is really um, exciting, I think. Right, and, and um, just to, to focus in, uh, in terms of net neutrality, in terms of the people who are in the audience, how many people, how many people feel they have a good understanding of what the net neutrality fight is about? How many people don't? <laughs> okay. So some people educate That's impressive. I mean, yeah. that's just getting, getting to that point, I think, is that's really one of the most important things we can do as an internet community to influence policymakers is to let them know what it's about. Um, it's, it's shocking how many times you'll meet with staff or members of Congress and they won't understand 
the policy issues. And, and it's, it's getting them up to speed on these things that is really one of the best ways I think the internet community can be involved. Not just saying, here's, what, here's the solution we want, but explaining why it's important and really having um, broad education. You've seen that a ton in the net neutrality debate. So many great videos and, and you know, memes and GIFs and stuff that were explaining what was going on. I think that, that helped a ton get, get everyone here educated, get people in Washington educated. Um, and you know, an educated populace is, is one that can make great changes. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Eric, in, in terms of the net neutrality debate, I know you guys have, have certainly weighed in as well. Um, you know, how much, how much do you think is really reliant on, on the FCC to do the right thing and putting the right rules versus how much do you think technology can, can play a role? You know, if the FCC were to, to, to put in place bad rules or, you know, if they put in place rules that get overturned, how much, you know, how much do you think can be gotten around those rules effectively? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're obviously big believers in the potential of technology. It may not happen overnight. You know, it may require portions of the Internet to transition to, you know, some new ways of, of thinking. But, you know, the, the product we launched today, uh, uh, Maelstrom, is a, a distributed web browser, if you will. Uh, it would be difficult, at least for the ISPs and how they look at net neutrality today, where they look at uh, these interconnects, peering links, and they can tell easily that all the traffic from Netflix is coming over this one pipe. Right. You know, it's, it's really simple for me to like, you know, maybe I'll bend that pipe a little bit. And, uh, you know, you had a little bit of an outage there, sorry. Uh, <laughs> with, a, with a distributed system, it's impossible to do that, right? Because the traffic's already on their network. It's coming from their network. It's coming from other networks. It's coming from everywhere, all at the same time. And they can't uh, interdict it as easily. It's very, it's difficult uh, to do uh, anything to the traffic, at least as the, the web is architected today. It's very simple to do it, and that's why it's being done. So that kind of transition to where a Netflix, for example, would transition to a peer-to-peer -peer system or something that looked more like Maelstrom or something that looked more like BitTorrent, very doable. Well, will they do it? I don't know. Maybe in the face of a policy decision that goes the wrong way and uh, you know, monopoly rents being extracted from a business model, then maybe it makes more sense. So overall, you know, tremendous potential, I think, for technology to, to solve a problem. Do you do, do you think, or does anyone think, um, that encryption has a has a role to play in that? I mean, if, it, it so helps with DPI, right? Because one of the, the things of, well, how do I figure out what to interdict? Well, I'll, look, I'll open the packet and I'll read your email. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like that. I like that. Uh, if it's encrypted, that's much harder. Right? You have to look at traffic patterns, and it's more expensive and not as effective. Unless they slow down all encryption. And then they slow down all encryption. <laughs> yeah, and then it's a then it's a <laughs> fight against encryption, right? So yeah. We experienced that a little bit too. We had an encryption um, software for our um, for our server, for our internet at the office, and we tried to access Hulu. And we weren't even able to access it. Yeah, they won't let you access it. So yeah, so it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Right. Yeah, and, and that's actually, I mean, one of the things that I think hasn't gotten as much attention in the net neutrality fight is, is the potential impact on encryption. You know, EFF, especially, I know this isn't your necessarily area of expertise, but like they've been pushing a lot of encryption stuff and, and things like HTTPS everywhere and, and getting more sites to, to encrypt. And yet, you know, there's a fear that if, you know, if ISPs think that the best way to deal with bad traffic or what they consider to be bad traffic or traffic that they can't put tolls on is is to slow down encryption that could impact a lot of uh, a lot of traffic that, that I, th I think is a big concern yeah well I think it's so EFF has this this goal of encrypting the entire web yeah. uh, which is we're making actual pretty a little bit of progress on um, and I think that for us one of one, we're really concerned about attempts to undermine encryption, attempts by, to, uh, I know the, we, there have been documents indicating that the NSA is taking any encrypted communications and keeping, and you know, marking them as worthy of additional suspicion, uh, things like that, which for us are really uh, concerning. And so I think we kind of have a several part program, and one is making encryption super simple, right? We just launched this new campaign with a number of other organizations called Let's Encrypt, with, uh, let's encrypt, which is actually, you know, a certificate authority, which took a long time to line up and uh, helps people get HTTPS on their sites. And then we also have uh, campaigns to try to push for secure and useful crypto. I think most people find uh, PGP just overwhelmingly difficult. And so we need a solution for that. We need it immediately. And so we're doing, uh, we've launched a campaign for uh, secure and useful crypto, which we already put the first part out of, uh, launched the first part of. And so 
but it's it's going to be a challenge and I will say that uh, it's if we can make encryption the default, if we can make it something that everybody's using, then they can't pull it aside as special and worthy of additional scrutiny. It has to be. Uh, you were going to say something. No, no. <laughs> I was just going to say that um, in the uh, swag bags, uh, there should be a little booklet in there that talks about encryption and how you can do it quickly and easily. And I think that. A lot of people ask us with respect to this film, like, what, what can I do? You got me fired up, you know, what, what, I want to protect the internet, what can I do? One of the first things that, that you can do is encrypt your own communications, and there's lots of ways that you can do it, and inside the bag you, you will find um, yeah. some more information on that. And it's not as difficult as people think it is, yeah. it has this reputation. I think this audience, there's a lot of technical people who probably recognize that, but even for non-technical people, it's really not that, not as difficult as people have made it out to be in the past. Um, and we just launched a, uh, an update to um, materials called Surveillance Self-Defense, so ssd.eff.org. And it is a little bit elaborate, like we go through like threat modeling and just sort of the basic concepts you need to know, but when you get down to it, there's actually some guides that are pretty straightforward um, as well. So in, in talking about encryption, I'm going to jump back over to the surveillance question. Um, you know, I think for some people the surveillance issue hasn't been seen so much as, as a threat to the internet. I mean, a lot, of the, um, a lot of the discussions around surveillance were things like, you know, Section 215, which was, you know, mostly focused on collecting, like, phone records, but there's a whole bunch of internet surveillance going on as well, and as you mentioned, uh, not all of it is under like 215, but something like 12333. Um, you know, there was a, an article that came out um, a few months ago by a, a State Department whistleblower, effectively, saying that everyone has been talking about surveillance issues and, and the Snowden documents and everything that was released and focused on, on programs that were targeting the U.S. And that was 215 and then... Um, uh, 702, right. <laughs> 706 is net neutrality, 702 is surveillance. I get them screwed up in my head at times. Um, but the, the point of this article was that those are, those are minor issues compared to 12333, and basically the NSA uses 12333 to justify almost everything and then uses these other programs that everyone is fussing about just to fill in the little bits that they, they missed. And you know, part of the 12333 is it basically allows the NSA to do anything to anyone overseas. And that includes hacking into Google's data centers overseas, Microsoft data centers overseas, Yahoo's data centers overseas, and then accessing everything, not, not with their willing permission, because they all freaked out about it once it came out, or in some cases, <laughs> as, as you shake your head, perhaps with their willing participation. So, um, so discuss how how much of that, you know, how how much of that really is a threat to kind of the way we communicate and the way we use the internet today. Um, so there's like I feel like there's like seven issues in there. So okay. I'm gonna maybe tackle like some of them, um, and then other people can jump in. So I think one of the big, one of the kind of overriding questions here is. How come we don't understand what laws the NSA is using to justify its surveillance? Like that's in and of itself hugely problematic. Like we should all know what the law says and we should all know how it's being interpreted and what, they're, what, what they think they're allowed to do before we try to talk about how we should reform it. So that's um, in some ways one of the biggest problems with the NSA is they have a secret legal interpretation of what the law allows them to do. Um, and then you are correct in that over the last year we have learned, uh, or at least had uh, certainly our suspicions confirmed, that 12333, this executive order, which was not passed by Congress, uh, is the primary authority that the NSA is using to engage in surveillance of people overseas. And so fixing that is kind of an ongoing problem. And so I kind of think of it as sort of like, you know, 215 is like the small bubble, which is telephone records, section 702 which you mentioned before, is this larger thing, which is internet surveillance that Congress has oversight over. And then 12333 is all that other stuff, which might include potentially internet surveillance that Congress does not, at this time, believe it can have jurisdiction over. And so can we get kind of Congress to get in there and, and start saying, hey, we do have jurisdiction over this? It's very difficult without additional transparency. So I think that the first 
push is going to be for transparency. And then I think we really have to do something to establish the rights of people outside of the United States and their rights to privacy. So uh, one of the things that's very difficult and frustrating working in this space is that um, members of Congress who control the law are elected by American citizens, and so they only ever want to hear from American citizens, right? And uh, the Supreme Court is particularly interested in issues that relate to American citizens. It's easier to say they are uh, protected by the Fourth Amendment. The government likes to argue that people outside of the United States don't have constitutional protections. So that leaves us in this very difficult position when what the NSA is doing is really affecting people outside of the United States. So how do we, um, how do we protect people outside of the United States? So we're starting with transparency and pushing for additional uh, for the repeal or at least the reform of 12333, not repealing because it does have a couple of interesting things in there we wouldn't want to repeal. Um, but then it's really technology companies, right? Because technology companies, I mean, there was nothing preventing Google from encrypting the communications between its data centers before the NSA started tapping into them, right? They had the ability to make it, if not impossible, so much more difficult for the NSA to get in there and uh, sweep up communications. There's not only can technology companies, big ones, like you know your Googles and small ones, um, make it very, very, very difficult for the NSA to engage in surveillance, they've also got tons of money that they could be using to lobby for surveillance reform bills. Uh, and that would be a very good use of their money, I think. And then third, um, I really feel like these companies are often in a place where they find out about surveillance orders where nobody else knows about them and they can legally challenge them in ways that the rest of us wouldn't know about. So there is a, a, a need for massive public pressure on your big tech companies. And that can come from outside and it should also come from inside, right? Um, there's a role that uh, internally um, uh, even engineers at big companies can play. I was. Uh, we issue a report every year called Who Has Your Back? And it looks at the privacy policies of big tech companies like Google and Facebook and such. And um, we were on the, a very contentious phone call. We have multiple phone calls with all of these companies. We talked to their privacy officers and all this. And uh, I was on phone call with one of them. And he said, I am sick and tired of my engineers giving me a hard time because you're only giving me three stars. I need that fourth star. <laughs> and I was like, that's great. Give them a hard time. Make it really difficult for lawyers within these companies to justify to their own engineering teams the things that they are pulling on public policy debates. So I think, I think that even as we move ahead with all this policy discussion, like, we need to start working on technology and making it much, much more difficult to surveil. So at, this, at the same time, their yeah. budget is infinite. Right. Are, are, you, are you not giving them authorization to simply spend more money? Right. How do you how do you ultimately raise something like that? Yeah. Uh, for the NSA? Or yeah, for the, the NSA. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Well, so the NSA has to have its budget approved by Congress, right? So, and one of the things we've seen but is... But it's a black budget, right? Congress really doesn't. Right. But Congress has, at least last year, considered a couple of amendments that would try to say uh, you can't use any of the money we authorize for uh, this type of surveillance. So far, they haven't actually passed one of those. But it's an interesting uh, It's kind of close. It's, yeah. an, it's an interesting yeah. hack, right? And so I, I think that you're right that um, the budget is an interesting question as far as what are the resources the NSA has. But, it, but even so, I mean, I think it's, it's a valid point that if companies are doing much more, even with you know, the supposedly infinite budget of the NSA, Companies can still make it a lot more difficult for the NSA, even even with that budget. I mean, the encryption stuff is, you know, no encryption is totally unbreakable, right. but you can, you know, add add an awful lot of difficulty, you know, to the practices where before it seemed like they were often just sort of waltzing right in. Right. So which which brings up the question though, for for smaller companies, you're talking about larger companies that, you know have a bunch of engineers and have money to deal with this for smaller companies and sort of, you know, who hopefully many of them or at least some of them will be the big companies of tomorrow, you know, it seems like, at least in my experience of talking to smaller companies, a lot of them don't even think about these issues at all until it's much later and then the NSA has already figured out their back door in. <laughs> yeah. We're not big enough for the NSA to pay attention to, no. Right. Um, but it's, I, I think it's an important issue for the whole internet ecosystem, including small companies. Um, one thing I think you're you're starting to see are people recognizing that 
consumer, consumers losing confidence in the security of their information is going to lead people to use fewer and fewer services that don't take steps to protect it. Right. Um, and obviously, that a lot of that's in the hands of big companies, and I think they're starting to get the message. Um, a lot, again, a lot of this is because of the education. People, people making a big deal out of people rating people. It's driving people to develop new protocols or new systems that that you can turn to in lieu of these of these less secure ways of doing things. You're always going to have people that are going to come up with creative ways to fill needs. And right. it, if we can make it clear that these are needs that that consumers want, people are going to fill that void, and it's it's going to become more and more common, and eventually bigger players are going to start so, catching on. So, so this is the question, sort of. The, you know, million dollar question that keeps coming up, which is, you know, how much of that is, how much do consumers really want? Because everyone always talks about like, yeah, you know, every time there's going to be some sort of great big privacy disaster and then suddenly people are going to demand better security and then they, then they go right back to using Facebook or whatever, right? So, um, you know, how much do you think is anyone on the panel, how much is that really happening? How much are people really starting to demand better security, better privacy? Um, you know, protecting their data. It's, I think, well, historically it's been generational. Um, one of the things that, that I thought was very surprising when I was a, a private practice attorney doing work on cyber locker sites, we did a little jury, you know, basically a mock jury to kind of see what people's attitudes were on, on their privacy with respect to information they store in the cloud. And there was pretty much just a clear delineation between the older you were, the more you thought it was an affront that a company would have access to the information that you stored on their servers. And the younger people, it was just, you know, this is what we're used to. This is the environment we've been in, so it's what we know. So I, I don't, and I don't want that to seem like we're somehow okay with it. It's a concern that we don't have. I think it's people are now recognizing how important it is. And if you're not in a world where everyone has access to your information all the time, you're going to start valuing that. You're going to recognize how important that is. So it's it's making it a part of the just basically the ground rules of the internet. I think people will start to recognize what they're missing. Um, you know, it, it, but it, it's companies that and people that are bringing attention to these issues that are going to drive that that interest. I think one one thing that that I've noticed in, in all of these discussions, I mean, the surveillance and, and net neutrality and other related issues, that that it almost always comes back to this question of transparency in terms of actually understanding what's happening, what's happening to your data, what's happening to your privacy, what's happening, you know, how a service is run, what the laws might be, um, you know, what's what's being done to really deal with, with the transparency question? Well, Snowden, right? Well, <laughs> in terms of surveillance, right? I mean, you have you have whistleblowers, so, so that's one answer, right? What else can be done or is being done? You know, we can't hope for a new Snowden, or I guess we can hope for a new Snowden, you know, every few months or something, but... but well, before Snowden, there was what, Wiki, WikiLeaks, right? So I sure. think enforced transparency and, and the openness of the internet just brings about... But, but is, 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 there, is there something from, you know, from the, I mean, that's, that's always relying on someone to come out and say, so-and-so is doing something bad, but is there, is there a place or is there a way to encourage more you know, companies to, to be more upfront about things in policy. the first place and policy makers policy to do that, right? So I think one of the best provisions in net neutrality is, is transparency, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me what you're doing and then you can use public pressure, SOPA, whatever, you know, what limited market power we have in the U.S., choose A or B, uh, to, to try to, you know, instill better behavior. But transparency, you know, that sunshine being the best disinfectant, that's the first thing. And without that, really nothing is possible. So start there. If you can get that enshrined in policy or, or whatever the mechanism, you know, technology, uh, whistleblowers, whatever it may be, that's the first step. Good. Yeah. Well, I was just going to piggyback off of that and say that, uh, you know, we have a very broken classification system in the United States where we are classifying documents at a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. over -class classifying documents at a rate far exceeding our ability to declassify them and uh, have them come out. So we're, we're having this ever-increasing mountain of secrets. And to even manage and maintain and keep a you know, hold of all that, we've now granted people you know, security clearances to do this. We have more people with security clearances now than live in all of Los Angeles in the United States. And it's, it's a broken system, right? So it fundam fundamentally, to really reform the system. But that you also helps to. lead to more Snowdens, right? I think of whistleblowers as being sort of a, a 
pressure you know, release, when the secrecy has just completely overwhelmed what we're capable of handling. And I, I don't believe that Snowden is the end. I think in some ways he might be the beginning. We don't know what will come next. But I do know that technology has made it a lot easier for whistleblowers to communicate securely with journalists, especially because, um, frankly, journalists are often uh, pressured to uh, turn their sources over. Uh, one of the other roles I have, one of my other hats, is I, uh, I founded an organization called the, along with some other folks, uh, Freedom of the Press Foundation. And one of the uh, services that we offer, one of the tools uh, that we have helped to maintain is a, a, a software that was created initially by Aaron Schwartz, late uh, amazing internet activist, called SecureDrop. And it basically is designed to make it secure and possible for whistleblowers to get documents to journalistic organizations uh, securely uh, and anonymously or pseudonymously. And, and that we are doing what we can to uh, provide scholarships to get this set up at different news organizations so that anybody could be WikiLeaks, right? And I don't know that there will be a million Snowdens, but at least we'll have mailboxes available if they <laughs> happen to show up. Um, so I, I think it's a classification issue. Sure. And can I just respond to one thing you said? Mm -hmm. I, I know that there's this idea that um, that younger generations care less about their privacy than older generations. And I think if you actually look at academic studies, it's a little more nuanced than that, that, uh, for example, younger generations spend a lot more time playing with their privacy settings on Facebook. Uh, so there's, there seems, it's not necessarily yeah. that, maybe some norms have shifted and maybe some of their expectations are different, or maybe they're trying to use technology to solve the problems that uh, that um, older generations might not have used technologies to try to solve. The thing that, that uh, I saw someone say recently, which made a lot of sense, was and they, they ran a, a startup that catered to, to a younger audience, and they said what they found was that effectively, young, the younger generation, they very much do care about privacy, but it's, it's a different threat model to them. They're not concerned about the NSA spying on them necessarily, they're concerned about their parents, <laughs> right? And so, you know, once you get into that mindset, and you reckon, and then they become very, very careful about how they use technologies. If you know, if their parents want yeah. to see. Yeah, I, I think so. what a lot of it is is you're kind of in a way conditioned to expect uh, a certain amount of privacy, and you can you you become more comfortable with it. And that's I think troubling if, if young people are are growing up in a world where their stuff isn't secure, and they somehow don't have a, the same expectation of their own privacy, um, which which I think is a norm that I, I hope is shifting. That that we're we're giving people the rights that, that they come to expect, they come to feel secure in. I mean, I think the older you are, the more you've lived in a world where the possibility of someone just going into your data and taking it was not fathomable. So you, of course you wouldn't want that. But if you're, if, you know, you, you come to have, be in a world, I think, I think your, your expectations get shifted around that, which isn't a good thing. But I, I, I'm hoping that we're kind of coming out of that with the way the conversation on privacy is has changed over the past few years. So uh, I just want to go back to the, the transparency question a little bit. We were talking, I mean, you were talking about sort of government transparency, but I also want to talk about corporate transparency because I think that's an important part of this too. And, um, you know, how much do, do we think that corporate transparency, some of which can be, again, also driven by whistleblowers, certainly, but how much of it do you think can be sort of a market reaction to, to the public and consumers and users of different services really demanding transparency, really demanding to understand what the security is, you know, how their how their information is held privately, or, you know, as some people believe, do is, is that just too complicated for, for the public to, to really understand or to to force companies to recognize? I, I think in some circumstances it's it's really difficult, and I think a lot of companies are willfully obtuse about it. I mean, how many of us read our, our licensing agreements or our, our software agreements? It's, it's this weird norm that makes it almost impossible to, to voluntarily enter into an agreement. I think, I think one of the interesting bits in the net neutrality debate that, that you know, people talk about is this idea, well, transparency, if you, if you know your, your, your website is getting throttled, you're not going to use the service. Well, you know, that, maybe that's a possibility if you have a choice of a different service. So that, in America, you really don't, so that's kind of not a question. But if you look at Britain, in Britain where they have unbundling, and you could have multiple different ISPs using the same pipe, so you have a choice between six different um, ISPs anywhere you are, they still engaged in blocking. And it was, it was open, but people didn't have really the capacity, the time, the interest to delve into that, understand what was happening, and react to it. 
So it, when we talk about transparency, I think there's a real important distinction between meaningful transparency and sort of you know, following the letter of the law transparency. And we really need to get much closer to that first bit if it's really going to have any kind of an impact. How, and I mean, I just kind of go back to that, the question though of how uh, getting to meaningful transparency sounds really good. How do you get there? Is the question and like I, I feel like it's it's a topic that people have been talking about for decades, really, and, and sort of it always comes up, and yet you know companies that aren't transparent keep seeming to have success and get get you know very large. So there's sort of the market message right now is that transparency doesn't really matter. Is there a way to change that? I think the more you have organizations like EFF that are shining lights on what people are doing and taking that step to to really highlight um, and break it down for consumers. I mean, you, you're seeing more of, I think, uh, a culture around that, an infrastructure around that, people who are looking out for internet users. Um, and, and, you know, companies like BitTorrent that are, are developing tools that that kind of force that upon their competitors. You know, I think, I think the, the more competition you have for services that actually do the right thing, you're going to get people doing the right thing across the board. The more you have organizations pointing out where there are failings, the more you're going to get people to react. But it's a slow process. I mean, these are huge corporations, and there's tons of consumers and users that are that are involved in a, in a bunch of different constituencies. Um, it's but you know it's slow process, slow process. But I think it's one that we're engaging in a lot quicker on on the internet, um, just given sort of the natural response times you get on the internet. I think it's evolving a lot quicker. We're not there yet. When it affects their bottom line, I think that's when we start to see yeah, their brand change. Right. Right. So, again, I think it's public pressure and, and people kind of demanding a certain level of expectation with respect to privacy um, that will really kind of help to get the change going. You know? So They're all in there to make money somehow. Yep. And if people aren't trusting them for their services, they're going to go somewhere else. And they've got, you know, board directors to answer to. So, yeah. yeah. One of the things I've noticed about uh, with trying to get, I spend a fair amount of time trying to get companies to do the right thing instead of the completely wrong thing. And um, what's interesting to me is they, at least in my experience, companies seem very non-responsive to petitions with hundreds of thousands of users, even if you can prove that it was their users that were speaking out. Uh, or people, I've seen people, you know, put together, oh, we're going to, like, leave Facebook in droves, and, like, Facebook doesn't care. And one of the things that does make them care is media stories. Yeah, right. So I've noticed that even a tiny media story about even a huge tech company, and they notice, right, there's somebody at that company who's paid to pay attention to that. They notice and, a negative tweet. I mean, right, yeah. they notice a negative tweet. Hypersensitive about Twitter. Right, right. they are hypersensitive about Twitter. So there's this ability to, uh, you know, publish blog posts, publish reports, get those into the hands of journalists, and then it, sometimes it starts to happen in the tech, uh, you know, journalists, and then it goes to sort of the broader uh, uh, sort of media sphere and then that that can result in pretty enormous changes and that's why I was so excited about um, you know Snowden uh, connecting well with Glenn and Laura because they're these extremely um, just talented journalists who are able to take the Snowden stories and turn them into you know blockbuster you know stories on you know front pages of newspapers for a year and that's really kind of changed a lot of conversations about surveillance were you going to say something? Well, I mean, the, I think the answer to the question is, uh, you know, establish more companies that have better culture and better values, and, you know, eventually transparency will be ingrained. Uh, it's not always possible, it's not even likely, but if there is a, a negative brand association or a negative penalty to a lack of transparency, hopefully, you know, the market is at least reasonable enough to, uh, you know, fulfill its role in driving companies to do the right thing. But if you start with a good culture and a culture of transparency and you, you start in the right place, and I don't know that all companies have done that, then I think you got a better shot at it. And that, I mean, that goes back to just the general sense of activism where if you're getting... Yeah, the more people that you get interested that believe in these values that go on to start companies, that go on to build value, that you know, it's a long process. But right. So um, looking forward a little bit, sort of past the... You know, we've talked about net neutrality battles, which we'll kind of probably know where the FCC is in probably three, 
three four months, months. Yeah, three-ish months. We'll know at least what they're doing, but then there'll probably be a legal battle around that. And we know, you know, Patriot Act stuff will be June of next year. Twelve Triple Three might go on for a little bit longer. What what big things do we think are sort of coming beyond that? So we're looking out, you know, a year or beyond. What what do we think are the next big issues that are gonna the, the sort of existential issues for the internet? I think there's you know a transition of ICANN, for example. I think is, is something that folks are concerned about. Does governance transition to? How, how many people here know what that is about? Does anyone transition of ICANN? No. Uh, I'll, I'll give the really quick <laughs> version of it. Right. So the internet for better or worse, is sort of managed by this organization called ICANN, which, not quite, but a little bit. They, they manage parts of it. Uh, and they are sort of loosely, by a thread, tied to the US government um, through, for historical reasons, basically. Um, and and, and the, the Commerce Department, which technically has oversight, is trying to spin off ICANN into a completely independent organization um, and there are some really good reasons to do that, one of which being lots of other countries who especially have seen the surveillance stuff are freaked out and don't like the idea that the US government has some sort of governance over, over the internet. Um, and there are, you know, and so the more that that's happening, the more likely they are to sort of either splinter the internet or to do other things. Um, but there's also potentially bad things where without the, the US government uh, backstopping that, in, where they've actually been mostly good, um, others could potentially take control, including countries like Russia and China that have a very different view of what the internet should be, right? That's a quick summary. And so that's a fight that's going that's on now right. in terms of where ICANN is going and, and if other people may sort of take over parts of governance. Right. Or, or the balkanization of the internet, right? right. You, just point, you just point to another example. Do we end up with many internets and not one internet? And how would you fight something like that? That could be an issue. Yeah, that could be a, a big issue. And, and some of that is, uh, I mean, a lot of that has been driven by, um, by the surveillance stuff. You know, where, where now um, some countries are, are trying to pass laws that basically say, if you're offering services in my country, you have to keep all the servers in that country, in that country right. and you can't have any of that data, you know, cross into the U.S. Laws, right? or, exactly. um, and that's, that's raising a lot of questions about what kind of internet there's going to be, or if there will be a mobile service, for example. Right, right, right which could, could be a really big challenge. So if we were kind of thinking long term, in a lot of ways I feel like the biggest existential threat to the internet is people having an app only experience of the internet which is that all of a sudden you have a phone and it's like your mega computer only it's tiny and you're just plugging it into a screen if you want a bigger screen experience but um, everything that you have on the phone is actually some app, and it's not actually letting you get to a website. You're not actually visiting Facebook. You're using a Facebook app. Back to AOL. Right. Here. And so, and I think that's really nerve-wracking from a censorship perspective, um, an access to information perspective. I think there's that that is something that we have to start thinking about, kind of longer term. And then in the you know, and then over the next year or so, I think we have interesting battles around software patents. Uh, interesting battles and whether or not, I mean, I think Congress is actually open to something like reform there because it's such a completely broken system. And I think uh, copyright online continues to be a massive policy battle. Um, and so those are some of the other things. Uh, I think the cryptocurrency discussion is pretty interesting as well, but I don't know if that's coming in the next year or two. I think one really important thing to, to pay attention to is uh, the mass conglomeration of internet access services. Uh, there's, there's right now a merger that could give <coughs> one company control of something like 50% of high-speed internet subscribers in the entire country. That's baffling. If we live, I mean, I live in Oakland, I have one real provider, you know, maybe two. Um, we're so far behind our peers, nations, in terms of uh, internet speeds, there's really no reason to think that those are going to go up unless we get more competition. And there's very little appetite um, in Washington to make that a reality. And it's, I hope we can engineer around it, fingers crossed, because policymakers are not doing a great job with it. Can't and make the pipes go faster. I, yeah, I don't know. Can, can we get more pipes? I mean, yeah, that's more pipes. hard to do. So, I mean, it's, it's, you're going to see, I think, the epicenter of um, internet activity move to where there are um, adequate networks. And, and if we're not there, it's going to move somewhere else. And that's certainly concerning.
So I think you're going to have plenty of material for a sequel. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> right. sounds like. Um, so I want to get to the question of you know what what can the the you know you brought up at the beginning, but what can the the average everyday person do? You know, who's not the CEO of a big company or even a startup or not connected to policy circles? Um, you know, what what are the the major things that people in the audience, or who may be watching or listening to this later, um, can can do to, to be engaged on, and, and to make a difference on these issues. I think one of the first things um, is is to understand the way you think about the internet. One of the themes that we that we kind of communicate in the film is that there's a, a shift in consciousness that, that people underwent when, in terms of the environment. Where now it's very understood and it's very important to protect the environment. People can understand why. And what we're trying to do with the film and, and as, as activists for, for the internet is to get people to understand what's at stake, why it's important to protect it, and to, to really have the kind of consciousness that's required to protect it because you're not always going to have the answer with policy or technology because things change so fast. But as long as you have an understanding of the importance of the open internet as the foundation, I feel like that's the first step. Questions easier than that. It's, it's used more BitTorrent, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> throw me a softball, Mike. Come on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think it is. It is. Hopefully, more companies will develop tools that are easier to use than you know complex mechanisms that we have today. PGP, as I agree, in mass. Uh, maybe messaging will move off of email, which will never be secure, is something that you know, can be inherently secure. And you see you know, companies like ourselves and others in this space. Messaging is very hot. Uh, once you control communications and or secure communications, that's a that's a big step. So. I think it's incumbent on a lot of uh, technology companies to make uh, secure and private solutions easier to use, better, uh, more accessible, just as accessible as the cloud is today. And then the second thing I brought up the cloud, stay the heck away from the cloud. Yeah, it's answer. <laughs> stay away from the cloud. <laughs> Entirely? Entirely. If possible. Um, all right. And I, maybe it's not, but if you can, please do. Um. So I, I have so many thoughts about what people should be doing, but a couple of things are that I agree that there's a, if, if people are technically oriented, even if you're not technically oriented, finding projects that are distributed, that value users, that uh, are privacy enhancing instead of privacy destroying and throwing your weight behind those, it can, it can be a game changer, whether that's choosing to use those kinds of services or actually choosing to contribute to them. Um, I know lots of people who are working for companies that have policies I disagree with in their day job and then they come home and they work on free software projects in the evening. And so there's a real opportunity there. There's also an opportunity, frankly, for uh, policymakers and decision makers within companies to kind of set norms for the internet. If you're in a big company and you're deciding this is our privacy standard, that can have this sort of ripple effect towards other companies. Other companies are then looked at to do similar things. You can kind of slowly raise the bar. Um, we always have advocacy campaigns up on EFF where you can learn about issues, you can speak out, you can contact your member of Congress. We have hundreds of thousands of people who sign petitions. Only dozens will actually go and meet with a member of Congress or a staffer. And those meetings can make a huge difference. So it's sort of like sign a petition online is the bottom level and huge and wonderful and we love everybody who does that. Picking up the phone and making a phone call, it makes a much, much bigger difference. When you, it's so interesting. When we were trying to affect a piece of legislation in California, all we needed was five phone calls to an office for that, uh, you know, state senator to change a position. Five phone calls, and people are always like, "Oh, somebody else is going to do it," but nobody else is doing it. You have to do it, right? So I, I, I often say, you know, think of yourself as actually being pretty influential because deciding to go and meet with a staffer can make a difference. Deciding to pick up a phone call can make a difference. And then, if at the end of the day, you're just not going to be that kind of person, you can also just you know, donate money to organizations that are, are working to make the world a better place. Um, my organization is among them, but certainly not the only one. Um, we are lucky to have 22,000 members uh, that support the Electronic Frontier Foundation, people who are like, I care about what you do and I want to make it happen and continue to support it. So that's another way that, you know, deciding to make ongoing support to causes you care about can, can make a big impact down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, ditto to all that. I, one, one, one thing we really, 
keep in mind, um, SOAP and PIPA was the bellwether, it was where everyone kind of paid attention to tech. The, the both parties still want to be the party of tech. Neither of them thinks that the other is the party of tech, right? So, so you, there is this community, the, the internet community and internet companies and internet organizations have real power right now. And, and it's time that we harness that and make sure that we're engaging with Washington directly, making phone calls, but, but being educated on what's happening on, on the edges. I mean, um, with things like TPP and all these, and these things that are on the edges that you might not think will affect the internet. They will, and in a lot of the, these pieces of legislation that are controversial sail through because nobody's paying attention to them. Yeah. Um, so stay informed and, and recognize that your voice does count. Read, read Tector. Read okay. the read best way to say, of course. And, and you will know what to do. <laughs> All right, well on that note, perfect ending note, uh, as we go into, into the movie, but I want to thank the panelists here for a very, very interesting discussion, and, and thank all of you for attending as well, and uh, I think we're gonna watch the movie now. Right? Well, I think it would take like a five minute break or something well, like that. We'll take a five minute break, yeah. grab food, drinks, yeah. There's a lot more to be gained from taking off the ball and the chain And the blinkers that have been caused and there's pain in more than one way Power to the people, we've fallen away from it There's a formal name for this, it's called a dictatorship And censorship's not restoring our faith for shit So let's rip away the red tape and paper clips It's a shame that it's come to this for